You're listening to. I'm Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Margaret Yue. And I'm Rira Yu. And we are here today to talk about our March 2021 Books and Boba book club pick, Girls of Paper and Fire by Natasha and Yan. Uh, before we start, we want to give the trigger warning of uh, sexual assault, uh, rape, uh, some violence, and um, I guess gaslighting as well. Uh, so... There are some dark topics, so uh, if you're uncomfortable with them, tread carefully. Yeah. Speaking of dark topics, um, Rira, how are you doing? Um, let me just say that we we picked a month to pick a book about uh, violence against Asian women, let me tell you. Oh, jeez. Uh, oh, I hadn't realized how, like, how fitting that would be. Because no one could have predicted what happened earlier in March with the shootings on the eight um, victims in Atlanta. Like, every day has been pretty hard, I I would say, especially for this month, because we're seeing um, more and more attacks against uh, our community, especially the elderly. Um, I know that, like, yesterday, the video of a 65-year-old Filipina woman being attacked and and like security guards nearby, like not doing anything, closing the door on her. Uh, that was something that really shocked our community, uh, despite all of the violence that we have seen on social media every single day. Yeah. So it has not been a great month, let me tell you. Yeah. I mean, the fact that the attack was caught on tape, that we can see it happen, and the fact that the people around them who were ostensibly there to keep the peace did nothing and in fact try to close the door on the whole situation like if there ever was an apt metaphor for our current times it would be that video of that woman getting attacked in new york um while people were standing by and actively trying to ignore what was happening and i mean this whole month has been a constant stream of just evidence of anti-Asian hate um, that has been going on for a year, right? Like, stop AAPI hate. Didn't they say there's was like three thousand reported cases in, over the last year alone? Yeah, um, over three thousand, uh, and women were two two point three times more likely to report uh, a hate crime against them. And the hate crimes can um, vary from just racial slurs to um harassment to actual attacks so this is very much um a reality for a lot of asian women um not just for this past year but for pretty much their entire lives um and i think we will go more into that topic in this book because yeah. i feel like um natasha nyan does a really good job exploring uh misogyny uh, systemic misogyny, to be more exact, and just how Asian women are fetishized or seen as um, just just replaceable. They're not seen as human. So I think those are topics that we'll touch upon in our book discussion. But I just want to emphasize that uh, violence against Asian um, Asian people have been going on for more than just 
2020 before the pandemic. I know that the author of K-pop Confidential, Stephen Lee, he shared on Twitter about an attack that he suffered back in 2018, I believe. Uh, He was attacked in the middle of the street in broad daylight, and no one helped him. And no one called the ambulance for him. He had to go um, get his injuries treated for himself. And when he went to the police, they kept saying, well, it wasn't a hate crime. It was not an attack. It was a it was a robbery. And they just kept minimizing uh, what happened to him. And I think we're seeing that more um, on social media because there is more video evidence of it and because it's happening so frequently. Um, so this is not new. Yeah. And, and it shouldn't yeah. take like an earth shattering event to have people talk about it but you know here we are something horrible has happened that is unmissable so now everything's on top of mind for for everyone and i think i don't know i don't know if things will change but very very difficult i think for for everyone yeah and so you know we, we we read this book to decompress and then i don't think i read this book to decompress i kind of went in thinking i was like okay it's about uh courtesans in a system where they're being <laughs> oh, no. they're they're under the patriarchy they're it's system systemic rape pretty much and i was like okay i'm gonna go in um prepared and i'm actually really grateful that natasha put in a trigger warning like at the very front of her book um i think more books need to do that because i really hate it when i don't know anything about a book and I just jump right in, and then there's like something that triggers me, like bullying or suicide or mental illness that is like very graphic. So I think more books should have trigger warnings. Yeah. Well. Okay. That's enough. I mean, we're gonna we're gonna keep on this topic, but we should get into our book club discussion. Um, so yeah, we're gonna take a quick sponsor break right now, and when we come back, we'll bring you our discussion of our March 2021 book club pick. Stick around. This episode of Books and Boba was brought to you by Irvin's Singapore's number one snack. Uh, so I tried some of these salted egg chips and it tasted so good. I don't really eat a lot of potato chips and when I do, it's usually American chips because uh, there aren't a lot of Asian grocery stores around me. So I was really grateful that you were able to share some of your haul. Yeah, it tasted a little bit sweet, and um, it tasted really different from what I usually snack on. Yeah, there's just something about Asian flavors that's just missing from... Even when American companies try to do Asian flavors, there's just something that's missing. Something's just not right. But that's why it's great that Irvin's salted egg chips are so packed with flavor. Um, They use real salted duck egg that has been brined for 30 days, then steam-cooked and hand-mixed into the chips... Then mix together with real salted duck egg yolks, fresh curry leaves, and red peppers. Um, Dice right into the bag. So that's a lot of flavors in like a really potent package. Asian snacks for the win. (laughs) Yeah, you can check out Irvin's for yourself by going to eatirvins.com to order your Irvin's chips today. And use the promo code BOOKSANDBOBA, all caps, for free shipping on any order. Um, Again, that's eatirvins.com and promo code BOOKSANDBOBA. And now back to our regular programming. Happy snacking, everyone. (sighs) 
Kathy? Kim? Steve? Where have you been? We haven't seen you for seven years. Has it been that long? Uh Uh-huh. Oh. Uh, I was on a fishing boat. Training. It's part of the plan. What training? What plan? The the third season of the Korean Drama Podcast! Okay, we're doing this again? Okay, but there's no body switching in this one, right? No! The only thing we're switching is the fact that we're going to watch a good drama this time. From 2020, called Itaewon Class! A story about starting a restaurant and a dish that Koreans love called Revenge. I thought you were going to say kimchi jjigae. I thought you were going to say juke. Those two. Koreans love those two. Listen to the Korean Drama Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. Part of the Potluck Podcast Collective. Um, this is also your standard spoiler warning. Uh, we are going to talk about the entirety of Girls of Paper and Fire, including plot points and revelations about the climax and twists. So if you have not read the book and you do plan to, um, this is where you should pause our podcast and come back um, after you finish the book. And with that said, um, let's get to it. Rira, can you start us off with the book jacket description? All right. Each year, eight beautiful girls are chosen as paper girls to serve the king. It's the highest honor they could hope for and the most demeaning. This year, there's a ninth, and instead of paper, she's made of fire. In this richly developed fantasy, Lei is a member of the paper caste, the lowest and most persecuted class of people in Ikara. She lives in a remote village with her father, where the decade-old trauma of watching her mother snatched by royal guards for an unknown fate still haunts her. Now the guards are back, and this time it's Lei thereafter, the girl with the golden eyes whose rumored beauty has piqued the king's interest. Over weeks of training in the opulent but oppressive palace, Lei and eight other girls learn the skills and charms that befit a king's consort. There she does the unthinkable. She falls in love. Her forbidden romance becomes enmeshed with an explosive plot that threatens her world's entire way of life. Lei, still the wide-eyed country girl at heart, must decide how far she's willing to go for justice and revenge. So this book is an Asian-themed fantasy, um, more specifically uh, Southeast Asian and Chinese fantasy. It's an imperial court drama. And this is something familiar to us, right, Marvin? I think, yeah, um, growing up watching, you know, Chinese and I assume Korean dramas, like China has exported oh God, a lot period of... period dramas. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, China has exported a lot of culture over the last few centuries, uh, one of which is like, Confucian bureaucracy and like imperial harem culture. Um, because if you look at like the imperial courts of like ancient Korea, China, you'll see like they kind of share the same type of government. I mean, these types of stories where you have emperors and like a harem, um, like it's these are stories we grew up watching our parents watch, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, did not want to watch Saguk dramas with my parents when I was like eight years old, but you know what? Like, you're kind of forced into it. Yeah. And I think as a kid, on the TV dramas, they minimize the, um, let's just say, rapey parts of harem culture. Oh, um, definitely. Yeah. So, like, I think this book was the first time I really sat with, like, thinking, like, oh, yeah. 
this is pretty fucked up. Like, especially like given our modern sensibilities on how, um, you know, how things should work. Yeah, I feel like a lot of um, Asian period dramas, they focus more on like the backstabbing that a lot of the courtesans do to each other and more about the political drama rather than like the um, the trauma that the concubines endure. And even though the setting is familiar for us and even though like uh, it's nothing new in terms of like uh, oppression through uh, hierarchy and Confucianism, <laughs> uh, I think Natasha did a really good job giving it a refreshing twist, not with just making it a fantasy world where you have demons and uh, half demons, but also the fact that uh, Lei falls in love with another concubine. Uh, We don't really see a lot of queer period dramas, Um, even in TV, which, you know, now has like more representation. But I feel like those roles are um, set aside for side characters. Yeah, it was um it was refreshing to see. I was I was, you know, Lei as a character, main character is your plucky YA protagonist who has like that independent streak which clashes with this like world of tradition and etiquette. I mean, it's it's a story we've seen in other coming of age stories, right? Um we've seen this covered in stories not set in Asian inspired worlds too. You know, you have your country girl coming into the um royal court and making waves. Um but with the context of like this very rigid imperial court system, I think it's it's a fresh way to approach this story that I really appreciated. Yeah, and if you just if you consider how, let's say Ren, the love interest of Lei, was replaced by I don't know, like some prince, like a palace guard or <laughs> prince or whatever, it still would have worked, and I really like that because it's normalizing. Uh, this queer relationship, you know, it's saying that it is just as valid as a straight romance. And I really like the way Natasha wrote all of the romance scenes. I thought they were very sensual. And um, I don't know, there was something that was very intimate about the way she wrote uh, Lay's feelings for Ren, uh, both physical and emotional. And I I guess we'll get into it a little (laughs) bit later when we're talking about characters. But I want to mention that uh, Ingyen, Natasha, she studied geography at uh, University of Cambridge before, uh, you know, she became a writer. And I just think that's so interesting because uh, I think the world is very much, I don't know, it's like we said, it's familiar to us. and. With her geography degree, I'm like, huh, (laughs) maybe because she studied it, the map of the world is probably like more intricate than than other fantasy books. I'm not sure um, because this is a trilogy. So I heard that the second book, it explores uh, Ikara more and that there's actually a matriarchal society that's explored in the second book. Wow. So, yeah, uh, I mean this first book takes mainly in the Imperial Palace, which they call the the Hidden Palace. Yeah, the Hidden Palace, which is probably a play on the Forbidden Palace, right, in Beijing. Um and I was actually I was looking for a map of the world in the book, but all they had was a map of the uh of the palace. Um which made me a little bummed because they they have all these great descriptions of like what's the north, what's the south and 
Um, I'm assuming the, the second book will come with a fantasy map because that's kind of one of the cool parts about fantasy books is it comes with like the supplemental maps uh, so you can like visualize where everything is. It's also funny that you mentioned about the sensual scenes because I've been um I've been listening to a lot of books on audiobook and during those scenes I had to like pause and like close the door so that <laughs> uh, my my aunt who lives with me doesn't hear what I'm listening to. And the thing is like it's not like it, it's not super graphic. You know, like it's I mean it's still a YA novel, so the sex scenes are very much like tasteful i guess i i don't know like graphic sex scenes are also tasteful but there is some kind of um i don't know it's so private when you're reading those scenes it's like it's like you're in the room with them and you're like uh maybe i should not be reading this because this (laughs) seems to be like i seem to be interrupting something and that's how i felt when i was reading those scenes yeah i mean um those girls are definitely very very horny for each other and like i i really like the fact that they're so um they're like so emotionally supportive of each other and i actually really like the uh, bond that lay has with all the other courtesans even though there's like spikes of jealousy and there's some like bristling moments but overall like the camaraderie that they have as paper girls i thought it was uh, really refreshing because like i said a lot of court dramas they uh have like betrayals and it's it's a lot of like yeah girl versus girl which is <laughs> You know, it's it's like I know that that is part of court life, but also like girl and girl friendships are I mean, they exist. Yeah, I think it helps that. Um, so speaking of world building, the world that Natasha creates is a world that's based on castes. You're placing a class based on literally your genetics, right? How what type of human you are. Are you demon, part demon or fully human? And and that creates like a system of oppression that's based mainly on strength more than anything else. I didn't see any like economic or like capitalistic oppression. This is like your basic like the strong preying on the weak type of oppression, right? In this in this world, but Lay the main character is brought in as a paper girl, which is a fancy way of saying like a human courtesan for the demon king, um, which is what appears to be a giant like PR campaign to like appease the human subjects who are the most oppressed in this world. And part of being a paper girl is you have to service the king, but at the same time, you're not allowed to get pregnant. So, and that takes away a major point of contention in like a more traditional court drama where the concubines are all competing with each other to see who can bear the first heir. Yeah. Yeah. With the paper girl system like you said it is a pr uh it's a pr move from from the demon king it's saying hey i am generous and i do care about the paper cast uh by bringing these girls in as um into like privileged positions where they are with without food like they have food luxury everything that they can dream of so um it just kind of reminded me of like the model minority myth in yeah. Asian, like in Asian America because it's like oh look at how good you have it like um look at how privileged you are you shouldn't complain about uh the struggles that you face and there's so much minimalization especially when it comes to Asian women in that kind of uh, toxic perspective 
uh, yeah, like it just reminded me of that. It, yeah, it's like classic misdirection of like the oppressor on the oppressed to say like, oh, look, we do care. Don't you see this example? And like the model minority myth, there are also people who totally buy into it. And it causes also like animosity from other people saying like, you know, you don't have a right to complain because you are, look, you are the favorite ones, right? You're, you've made it. So why, why should you complain? This is the highest you can ever hope to go. So you should just enjoy it. Like you're not suffering, right? Yeah. And then like these people who are saying, who are calling these paper girls traitors and sluts and whores and all these terrible slurs. Uh, they don't understand that these girls are also under the same system of oppression, even when they are at the height of uh, their their caste system. So it's just like, hey, um, everyone is being oppressed. This world is not good for everyone. But that's what happens when you are pitted against each other for survival, you know? So yeah. you take down the people who are you know, who are closest to you. And there's like, I don't it like, it's so reflective of reality for, <laughs> for yeah. a fantasy world. I was really shocked by that. Yeah, there's a lot of prejudice that goes around, including from um, Lay's perspective, right? Like she comes in forced against her will to become a paper girl. And like for a good part of the book, she assumes that she's the only one who was forced to, right? And she even sees the other paper girls as like, traitors or like people yeah it's who, like why are you buying into the system like why did you willingly sign up for this when the truth is it's not that simple because of power right like most of the girls weren't like they didn't like none of the girls chose this right they were chosen you know um they were forced to either by circumstance or by their families yeah and this is what happens when when you're in a patriarchal society right uh, women are commodified. And um, even when, and, and for a lot of women, like they survive in patriarchal societies by kind of internalizing uh, all of the patriarchal ideals that they, they, they're surrounded by. So it is a coping mechanism. So for, for Lei in the beginning of, um, of her time at the palace, like, she doesn't quite understand that. And one of the girls um, that I'm thinking of right now is Blue, the quote-unquote mean girl <laughs> of the group. The and, haughty villainous character. And even even with her, um, who, you know, at the beginning seems like she's really into uh, the Demon King and really want to please him and thinks that she's, like, the most desired one. It's not that simple. She's there because of her father who pawned her off pretty much to get his promotion. And it just shows that the women's lives in this world, they don't like the world just doesn't see them as people like people with agency and uh, people with their own dreams. And for Blue, her way of coping with that is saying like, OK, if I believe that this is something that I want to, maybe it will be less painful. And I really like that scene where Lei discovers Blue um, having kind of like a, a vulnerable moment and that even though they kind of hate each other's guts, it's like, hey, I understand. And, yeah, you know, there's like a moment of camaraderie, like I said, with um, in the in the beginning with all of the courtesan girls. Yeah. It's and- not just jealousy. <laughs> Yeah, and, you know, with Blue and the other girls, you know, 
um, this is me coming in from the perspective of like a dude. So, you know, it's, it's more what I am inferring, but I think one of the themes of this book is how you value yourself. Right. And, you know, the different courtesans, they all, a lot of them have also internalized this like commodification of their own selves. Right. Like with blue, you know, she is trying to be the best courtesan, not because she wants to, right. She actually hates it. And, but because of her father's ambitions, uh, she has to come and be a paper girl. And, for her, she's only of value to her father if she becomes a favorite courtesan, which will allow her father to get that promotion to become like prime minister or something, and or the chief human minister. I think I don't think humans can become prime ministers in this world. So for her, you can see that, yeah, like she's trying to be the best because that's the only way her father will acknowledge her worth. Isn't that the same with, uh, like I said, model minority, <laughs> uh, aligning yourself with uh, white supremacy, uh, whatever system that is in power. Like, if I just work hard, if I'm just the best at what society expects me to be, maybe I'll be acknowledged. Maybe I will be spared. Uh, maybe I will finally have power, like with Blue's father. And that's a myth. It's never going to happen. Um, like, that's what white supremacy teaches us uh, that somehow we'll be able to defeat racism by i don't know following following the rules I, I don't know like i feel like with this pandemic it was really a wake up call for a lot of asians in the community because up till now a lot of people thought that we were safe and because we were doctors lawyers um like most east Asian Americans who are in the upper and middle class, they thought that they were safe, but it just showed that like like the like the system it, it can change them from like model minority to to the enemy. So yeah, you kind of see that same dynamic where the Demon King does have like a paper uh court official. He keeps um I think it's it's the Han the the other uh huge clan that has a lot of uh paper uh, the um, hano no the hano yeah, yeah the han is the name of the empire i think or the land. Oh, yeah 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 it, it's just like he keeps the paper cast close and they in, and they benefit from the power that he gives them but it's never lost on them that you know that power can be taken away and he's bringing them power so uh, he can keep his enemies close. I mean, the Bull Demon King Yomowan is a classic villain in like Sun Wukong, like uh, Monkey King mythology. Um, through his interactions with all the paper girls, he like abuses them in like he's like every type of abuser you can think of, right? He's the gaslighting boyfriend, he's like the aggressive rapist. Like, yeah, like I think for a lot of people, they think sexual assault they think rapists are you know just people who are aggressive and that they have this uncontrollable sexual desire but that's not the case rape is always about power control and entitlement and um i think a lot of people are surprised when a rapist is handsome charismatic charming and how they can really have two different sides to them where they can socialize and seem like the most uh wonderful person but behind closed doors they can be uh, they can be monsters 
And there are, I, I think the Demon King was an embodiment of every single type of abuser you can get. And uh, because of that, you see all of the girls process their rapes and trauma differently. Yeah, like you have Lei who absolutely hates it. And then you have like her friend Aoki, who was the youngest paper girl, um, kind of rationalized it, right? And sees the abuse as love. And the Demon King could generally be sweet and nice to her, but that's just another one of his manipulations. Yeah, like him telling her, hey, like you will be my queen one day and giving her promises that he can never fulfill. That is that is a a way of gaslighting. A lot of abusers, they have they fall into this pattern of, you know, being really good to you to make you feel grateful to them. And then without a moment's notice, they'll uh, they'll they'll abuse you. And then they'll go back to being sweet to you. So it it is a form of gaslighting, thinking um, like, oh, he loves me, so this can't be abuse. But it is. Yeah. And to people outside, like to outsiders, that might seem kind of frustrating because it's like, why, why are you protecting your rapist? Why are you, like, can you not see that he's gaslighting you? But for Aoki... Um, for like when I was reading her parts, which was really, really hard for me to read, because uh, I've had friends who have been in abusive relationships like that, and they do rationalize it uh, in a way uh, where they're protecting their abuser because that's a way of them coping with their trauma. Um, so that part was really difficult to read, but it is like it is truthful and. I do like the fact that even though um, the rape scenes and the gaslighting scenes are really hard to read, uh, it's not gratuitous. Like, the rape scenes are off-page, and it's kind of left to the imagination. And I think Natasha doesn't really write about the rape itself, but more on the aftermath of it. Like, how do the women talk about what happened to them? How... Do they learn from each other so, you know, they can protect themselves better when um, when it's their turn to be uh, sexually assaulted? Yeah, I, I like that about the book. I like I like that she made the decision to you know not dwell on the act itself because, you know, that wouldn't have added much to the story besides adding some like more, you know, like triggering trauma, right? <laughs> or. Um, and I, you know, I, I do wonder if those scenes are out there somewhere and she had to cut it, but I think, you know, focusing on, focusing on how these girls deal with the situation, um, is much more important because we know it happened, right? We, we know it happened. Like this is the whole point of their existence right now is to be concubines for the king. And I agree those scenes with Aoki were really hard to read because, you wanted her to, you know, open her eyes to see what was actually happened, but you also wanted Lei to like kind of be more empathetic sometimes. I, I yeah, think. it's gonna like back <laughs> off, girl. Like she she went through some stuff, um, and in a way, I mean, I know I know that like Natasha didn't mean for this to be the case with Aoki and uh, Lei's relationship, but. In like a funny way, it reminds me of being friends with someone with opposite 
like political views as you is like how do you how do you stay friends when you have opposite beliefs like how like how do you go into the middle ground for that but um obviously aoki is being gaslit and she's coping with it in a very different way from the other girls and it was really hard to read partially because she was so young she's 16 years old um and I know that there's a lot of conversations about what YA should censor, like what is considered too graphic or too uh, violent, inappropriate, mature for teenagers. And unfortunately, rape, sexual assault, um, manipulation, abuse, these are all things that uh, teenage girls do face in reality. and. I think it's really important that there is a book that does tackle those subjects. And I think Natasha did a pretty good job um, being sensitive to those topics, but at the same time, really focusing on um, how to process trauma. And um, and I like the fact that like this world is... Uh, like Natasha could have easily made this world an egalitarian one, right? Where uh, women have equal power to men, they can have like the same amount of power, but but then we would have a different story. Um, and it's a different kind of female empowerment because you're giving, <laughs> um, because you see that these girls, even though they're in a circumstance where they're they're being systematically abused, uh, they have strength. And they're able to continue every single day uh, enduring this abuse. And I think that is a form of strength that is really underestimated in in, in the world, in, in reality. Yeah, and it's also really interesting for her to make the Bull King like this avatar of like shitty male entitlement um, and also not give him a name. Right? Yeah, he doesn't have a name. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought that was really... I had a good chuckle when he was complaining about how he doesn't even have his own name. And it's like, well, you know, because you're like the amalgamation of every, you know, shitty boyfriend known in existence. Yeah, I like the fact that he didn't have a name. And like, these are paper girls and they're considered to be replaceable. I mean, every year there's a new batch. And whenever they are considered not useful or uh, dirty, they're just tossed aside. But in the book, they all have names. They all have very distinct personalities. Uh, So it is the opposite of what society in this world thinks. They believe that paper girls are just, just paper, nothing. But you see that with them having names, they have, there's humanity in them. Yeah. And that's not just because they're humans in this book. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I did also enjoy after the fact that, you know, they set up Leia as someone who is special because her eyes are a certain color and there's like some mystery around that, but it never turns into like a chosen one narrative. Like I was kind of dreading like for her to suddenly manifest like special powers that will allow her to defeat the demon king. Um, it turns out she's not the one with powers. It's her, it's her girlfriend. It's, um, Ren who has powers and the eyes are just like... I don't know if they could explain later on in the second or third book, but 
she's just like a normal girl who has a different perspective and is more independent and like it's more about her surviving on her own wits rather than like relying on some mystical power or prophecy i thought that was really an interesting like way that she subverted my expectations yeah i really like the fact that ren even though she was in love with lei she she had her priorities it was like okay this is like I have some shit to do. I have like a king to assassin. I don't have time for this. And I really like that it wasn't just I don't know, like a one-sided romance. Um and yeah, like it's pretty cool that she's able to fight and have all of these warrior qualities to her while she's still feminine. The action scenes. Yeah. Like- all two of them were really well done and i was actually really really surprised when i read those those, those passages like a, a friend you know totally murking that one dude it was really well done yeah it gave me like house of flying daggers feel because <laughs> <laughs> uh, like the fighting style that she has uh is very dancer like it is feminine so i like the fact that you know she doesn't have to be a man to show that she's powerful And I also really like the fact that Ren, she saw strength in Lei, whereas like everybody else were like, hey, you're a country bumpkin, like, (laughs) can't believe that you're fighting the patriarchy. Like, this is our, this is our fate. So, you know, like, as shitty as it is, you need to, you need to, like, learn how to take it. And I like the fact that Ren, uh, I have a quote here. Uh, She says, our lives here are defined by others, every decision made for us, every turn of fate pushed by the hands of others. But you stood up and said no, even though you knew what it would cost you. So I really like the fact fact that Ren saw strength in Lei and how she understood that speaking up, saying no, was an act of courage rather than a foolish act. like Mistress Hamora and all the other like upper superior women thought. And that's something that's something that like I was just like, hmm women can be misogynists too. Women can be supporters of the patriarchy. And that is also a form of abuse. Yeah, and you know the setting um with the caste system, you know, it's kind of an allegory for racism, right? Like you have groupings of people separated by their, literally by their characteristics, except in this case, like the people at the top of the demon caste, like the moon caste, um, which are full demons, they literally have more strength than everyone else. So, you know, they can easily project their power to other people based on violence, that's also how colonialism works, you know? <laughs> like the 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 country with the better weapons, the better technology, uh they're going to be the winners when it comes to war. And um you see that with you, you see that in the, in this world because the the moon cast they were able to win the war with their infinite amount of resources. And and treachery too, right? And they, like, treachery, yeah. Because there was like, kind of reminds me of like the Opium War. <laughs> <laughs> lots of lots of parallels in history. Yeah, like speaking of the Mooncast, I did enjoy that. You know, the demons in the story were demons in the Asian sense, and not the um like the Western Judeo Christian sense. Like these aren't servants of like a devil character. These are 
literally humanoid animals, which is more of an Asian thing, I want to say, then. Yeah, yeah. Um, it kind of reminded me of Inuyasha, <laughs> uh, because Inuyasha is like half demon, half human, and they're considered inferior to demons, and humans are just considered nothing in that world. So it kind of reminded me of the, the world of Inuyasha. But yeah, like demons that have animalistic characters, that is more East Asian and Southeast Asian uh, mythology right there. I mean, like in Korean mythology, we have like fox spirits and you yeah. see fox fox demons <laughs> in in this book. So I mean, in, in Asian, like East Asian, Southeast Asian mythology, you know, everything has a spirit and that's how you get fox demons that's how you get like it, it doesn't go deep into how demons came to be in this world I'm, I'm assuming you know we'll get more of that mythology world building in the second and third books when we delve more into things like um, ren's powers and um if we ever find out about lay's eyes so you know maybe we'll find out exactly you know, how demons came to be or maybe they just exist in this world you know that's a possibility i mean they just too. exist in yeah. in like Asian folklore. <laughs> so I don't know if Natasha is going to be uh is going to go more in depth with that. I mean, I wouldn't mind if she didn't. Uh but it seemed it seemed like all all of the casts came from humans at one point. From like what um Lay's mother had said. Yeah, I mean, uh, they're yeah. they're all considered human. They all have the same, I guess, um the same like blood. blood yeah um so yeah it's a little bit unclear but i i think i i, I think it's like they are all humans and um so, like i don't think any of them have magical powers unless they're a shaman um yeah besides the shaman and the and ren who has like magical like kung fu powers right yeah like chi energy manipulation power yeah there was really wasn't that much magic besides like the shamans who use their magic to hide the signs of abuse um on the girls i thought that was that was kind of messed up i i like i'm going off topic here <laughs> but um in terms of like ren and lay's relationship i said like i really liked the way it was sensual it wasn't like you know, super graphic, and these girls, like, they're so supportive of each other. They're so sweet to one another. They have camaraderie in this really oppressive environment, and it just goes to show that you can find love, you can find hope in the darkest situations. And even when you are, um, even when agency is taken away from you, even when your body is taken away from you, there is a way to reclaim it. Um, and I really like the fact that, um, like, there is a little bit of homophobia in this world, but, like, not too much. It isn't questioned as much as I thought it would be. Uh, the romance is forbidden more because Ren and Lei are concubines, and they're not supposed to be uh, in relationships outside um, their interactions with the king. So that's the forbidden part of their relationship, not so much the uh, their their queer relationship. And I am there was a passage though saying that um, dude on dude is okay, but not girl on girl. 
I don't know if it said said that explicitly. I think it was more like, oh, it's less talked about. Like it definitely happens. But I guess it's like more acceptable. Like I don't know. It seemed like there it- Well, no, uh, there was that scene when um Lei goes to the night houses for her, you know, her I was about to say bridal training, but it's not really a bridal training. It's like her sex training, I guess. And um she notices that there are uh, male courtesans and she asks if those are for, you know, the female court officials. And um, I think it was Zell who says, no, there are no, like, female court officials aren't allowed here. So I don't know. I guess, yeah, like, homosexuality is a part of the world, but only if you're a guy. So, like, I guess it's, like, advanced misogyny, but still, <laughs> advanced mytho- but still, misogyny. Mis- but still misogyny, right? And, yeah, I think, like you said, the book does a good job of not... The fact that they're in love with each other isn't what's villainized. It's the fact that, like, they dare to be in love with anyone besides the king, which is, like, apparently punishable by death or banishment and maiming. One of the criticisms that I do have about this book, even though I thought, like, Natasha did a really good job with exploring misogyny um, and the caste systems, I felt like lay like in the early days in the palace like i don't know the pacing seemed a little bit off to me um i don't know it like i know that she was getting her footing in in like court rituals and how like how to be a courtesan but i kind of wish that there was more urgency for her to find her mother uh i feel like um her trying to like find the names on the scrolls like that came a little bit too late for me um <laughs> I don't know. I felt like there needed to be, like, she needed to have more of a plan on how to escape. And it wasn't fully formed until, like, the last quarter of the book, which is, in my opinion, like, the best part of the book. I, I think the section where she first enters the court, it's more about her, like, adjusting to this new situation and, like, trying to figure out how to survive, right? I think her search for her mother, like, she takes every opportunity that she comes and it takes like half the book for her even to be called on by the emperor to service him. Right. And that was always like her opportunity to ask him about her mother. So I don't know if like, I didn't really have as much of an issue with the pacing, but I do agree that the book goes into overdrive in like literally the the last six chapters. Right. And I mean, the climax comes in the second to last chapter. I was actually really surprised that like 99% of the action takes place in like the last 20 pages. Oh yeah, because like Lei is given the task to murder the king and <laughs> I was like, wow, that's a that's a switch on on plans. Not uh, murder, assassinate, <laughs> a sanctioned murder. Assassinate, sir, a sanctioned murder, <laughs> but yeah. Um yeah, and and like in the span of like 20 pages you have both like a fight in the courtyard and a daring air escape with like an owl man. And it was just so much action. I was actually surprised by the amount of action there was in, in the last section because the first like 300 pages have been more deliberately paced, you know? Yeah, we go from um, internalized trauma to fight scenes towards like the end of the novel. So. Yeah, different types of violence. Um, I'm really glad that it escalated so quickly in the third act because that was kind of when 
uh, I sat up straight and I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> like we're going in now. <laughs> um, I kind of wish um, Ren's secret as like like a Xia warrior, like I wish that came a little bit earlier. Um, I kind of wish Lei was in the plan a little bit earlier. I don't know. Like, I feel like there was like 50 pages, 50 to like 100 pages where I was just like, okay, it's a little bit slow. Um, it might also be compounded by the fact that it kind of took her a long time to get to the palace. I kind of wish that came a little bit quicker. I'm nitpicking right now um, <laughs> because I, I don't know. I think it's just me being me being like, okay, pacing, structure, that's like so important in screenwriting, whatever. But <laughs> um, I did have a little bit of issue with the pacing, but I did enjoy the world overall. Yeah, I think pacing issues aside, I really enjoyed just reading one of these, right? A story about imperial court drama that there's so many stories about like, like with this setup taking place in like Victorian or like Regency England, where you have like the country, you know, outsider coming in and shaking up high society. But this is one of those stories, but in an Asian context, which brings with it a, a whole host of like culturally specific. I think it was a good depiction of this like system of aristocracy that, like we mentioned, Riru and I were familiar with because we grew up watching period dramas with our parents, but might not be as familiar with the rest of the world. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And uh, Girls actually debuted on the New York Times bestseller list. And I'm really glad that it did because it shows to publishers that stories like these are in demand, that it is there is a market for Asian fantasies with sapphic Asian girls. <laughs> and it's just and I and I've seen because this book came out in 2018, and I've seen more, um, more like lesbian, more queer girl romance that's been coming out in YA. And I do want to credit um, Girls of Paper and Fire for helping spearhead that. And I don't know, it's just it's something that I haven't really seen before. And we've been doing this podcast for. For quite a while now, and this book definitely stands out to me in terms of concept. Um, and I also want to say that Natasha Yen is um, a sexual assault survivor, a sexual abuse survivor. So her writing the story, I think um, she definitely put her own experiences into the characters, and um, I think it really helped her approach the topic with sensitivity and um i think it takes an um, uh, an extraordinary amount of courage to um to create art from something that caused you so much pain and so much trauma and that just shows that you know like speaking up about your own experiences writing about it creating from it it shows that you're brave and that there is power to it. And I've seen this with a lot of my friends who have uh, survived abusive relationships and sexual assaults. Uh, they have, you know, they, they have reclaimed their own agency and um, found that they are worth something uh, 
even though that society tells them that, you know, they're dirty or they're not, you know, worthy of love, they're, they, they were able to find self-love through art. So um, I really appreciate the fact that Natasha didn't shy away from, um, from exploring difficult topics. And I think she should be applauded for, um, for the care that she put into writing it. Yeah. Um, tell us what you thought about Girls of Paper and Fire on our Goodreads forums. And we always love to hear your thoughts on the book. Um, thank you, Rira, for discussing this book with me. Thank you to Natasha for writing this book for us to discuss. And yeah, that will do it for our discussion of our March 2021 book club pick. Rira, what are we reading for April? Our April 2021 book club pick is How to Pronounce Knife by Suvankam Thamavansa. Uh, this is a collection of short stories. Um, yeah, I think um, Kulap Belisak actually did some narration for the audiobook. Because I know I've heard this book before. Um, but I don't think we've done a, a Laos um a book by a Lao author before, have we? No, we have not, which is exactly why <laughs> I picked it. Uh, this book is also featured on our Stop Asian Hate reading list on our uh, bookshop.org affiliate page. Um, so you can purchase it through there and 10% of uh, the sale will go to local bookstores across the nation, as well as um, 10% will go into Books and Boba. So we can continue making this podcast because this podcast, while it is free to listen, does take a little bit of money to produce. So <laughs> any bit of support helps. And of course, uh, check out our Stop Asian Hate reading list. Uh, there are some great books on there. Some of them we've read for book club and discussed on the show, and some of them are new. Yeah. Thanks to everyone who have supported us through the bookshop already. Um, you can check out our bookshop store by going to bookshop.org slash shop slash books and boba. And you know, check out these lists that Rira has painstakingly curated for your for your browsing pleasure. I know I have to like update some of these, <laughs> so please be patient with me. Yeah. If you have any suggestion for books that I should add or categories, uh, please let us know on Twitter or Instagram. And with that, thank you so much for joining us for another edition of Books and Boba. I hope you enjoyed our discussion of our March 2021 book club pick, Girls of Paper and Fire by Natasha Inyan. And we'll see you next time. Yeah. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Rira Yu and edited and produced by Marvin Yue. Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Books and Boba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget, you can support Books and Boba and Asian American authors by purchasing books at our bookshop.org account. Check out the link in our show notes and also at booksandboba.com. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian American hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about the collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening. We're still here.
and we're going strong. It's an exciting time in Asian America. There are more movies, TV shows, books, and music reflecting us than ever. But all of these represent just a small slice of Asian American culture and experiences. So what do we do? Tell more slices. Asian Americana is a show that explores these slices of distinctly Asian American culture and history. We've talked about how Chinese Americans built California's Sacramento Delta, the art scene turns gallery institution giant robot, a play that explores the lost Cambodian pop music of the 60s and 70s, and, of course, Boba, just to name a few stories. You can find Asian Americana at asianamericana.com or on your podcast app.